last several months, our church has actually been working uh, through the book of Judges through, in a series on Sunday mornings. And one of the things that we have found is that the overarching theme of the book of Judges is that God graciously saves undeserving sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a wonderful theme for a book. And, um, and we've seen that truth actually played out time and time again, all the way, all the way through the book. We see uh, the, the people, they begin to sin against God. Can you bring me down just a little bit? Um, you, you see, the people begin to sin against God, and they begin to wor- worship um, false idols, pagan idols. And God turns them over um, to their enemies, where they begin to become oppressed. And finally, they can't take it anymore. And they call out to God for his mercy and for grace, for him to rescue them. And finally, what we see is that God hears their prayers. And what, what we see him do is he raises up a deliverer, a rescuer, a judge, a savior to save his people. And we see it time and time again. And so this morning, I just want to continue looking at this long list of saviors. I want to continue by looking at yet another savior of Israel, this time a man by the name of Jephthah, who I believe is probably Israel's most unlikely savior. Now, before you give me some funny looks, I do realize what day it is. I do know that it's Easter. Nobody has to remind me of that. I know that. I know some of you are here with your family because it's Easter, and some of you have specifically come to hear a message about the resurrection. And and I don't I want to disappoint you, and we're going to get to that. I promise we're going to get to that, Lord willing, if he doesn't take me out beforehand, um, or you. Um, uh, by that time, uh, I'll, I'll get to that. But what I really have felt led, uh, I believe by the Holy Spirit this, this week, is, is really to be able to preach this passage. It's a very simplistic story, and I think it's a very viable and important story for all of us who are here this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of Jephthah, just a little snapshot of his life. And what I want to do is I, I want to look at it and I want to see what we can learn about salvation, God's salvation for sinners. And there's two things specifically that we want to see concerning salvation this morning. Uh, the first is this. We see in this text the irony of salvation. The irony of salvation. Now, just to give you a little background to the story that uh, unfolds here in chapter 11, uh, what happens is God's people rebel against God again. They begin to worship false idols, as they've done so many different times. And again, God delivers them over to the hands of their oppressors. In this case, it's a group of men known as the Ammonites. And now God's people at this point are suffering to a greater extent than they have at any other part in their history. This is, this is bad stuff. This is uh, Things are really bad. Things are really tough. Things are really hard. And so what they look for is they look to be delivered. And so what we find is we see the introduction in chapter, in verse 1, of who this deliverer is going to be. And he is, his name is Japheth, and he is both a likely and in many ways, unlikely savior. And I say likely because as verse 1 says, this is Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Well, listen, when you're being oppressed by a great big bad army, then what you want to do is you want to find the biggest, baddest dude on the planet to find to go and to fight for you on your behalf to rescue you. And so uh, we find out that Japheth really fits uh, that picture, that billing. And so they ask him, but so in that way, he's a likely savior. He's a mighty warrior, but in many ways, he is an unlikely warrior. Now, follow the rest of the text with me. The Bible says, but... He was the son of a prostitute. 
It says, Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his, sons, when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now, when we think of heroes, we often think that our heroes have these incredible pedigrees, that they, incredible backgrounds and family lines that they come from, but that's not always the case for the people that God chooses, and, and that's certainly the case here with Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah's father was named Gilead, and Gilead um, committed adultery with a prostitute, which resulted in the birth of Jephthah. So his mother was a prostitute. Well, his father, Gilead, was married. Married to uh, had, had a wife and and she began to have sons of her own and, and things seemed to go okay for a while until the sons got old enough and wise enough to realize um, how significant the father's um, giving in, in 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 his inheritance was. When they begin to think dollar signs, they begin to think, look, we've got a lot of brothers. We've got to divide this up with. We need to get rid of as many as we possibly can in order to get as much money as we can. Now I know none of us think that way. Um, but just use your imagination, if you will. And so they're like, who can we get rid of? Well, Jephthah, uh, he's an illegitimate child. Let's send him packing. So they reject him, move him out of town, out of the country. And what we find is in verse 3, verse 3 says, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now, certainly Jephthah is a victim here. He's a guy who's been rejected by his family. Certainly his father must have rejected him in some way, shape, or form. Actually, what what we understand is the whole culture, the the whole community has rejected him and sent him out. All the people of Gilead have rejected him. And and, and so he's certainly a victim here, but I don't want to overemphasize that or romanticize that because this guy is no saint. In fact, he's basically nothing more than a mob boss. And when he moves to top, He needs something to do, so he surrounds himself uh, with a bunch of criminals. The Bible describes them as worthless men, which means that they were a bunch of robbers. Uh, They were a bunch of pirates during the time. They would, and you know, and not the romanticized type. They would steal from people who had, and they would take it and give it to themselves for their own selfish gains. So here is Jephthah, uh, surrounded by all of these men, and he's leading these people in organized crime. Okay, just laying that out for you to let you know that he's an unlikely savior, right? And, and so this is who we would think would be the last person, this, this son of a prostitute, robber, uh, we think would be the one that God uses to save his people. But this is the very man that God chooses. And we find that it's also going to be the man that God's people choose to deliver them as well. In verse 4, notice this. It says, after, the time of the, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. Now, do you see any irony here going on, all right? Here's a guy that they want nothing to do with. They, they say, listen, you're, you're not worthy to be here. You're an illegitimate child. They're saying all kinds of wicked things to him. Get out of town. Get out of the country. Go somewhere else. You're no use to us. In fact, you being here is impeding us to get what it is that we truly want. And for them, it was this inheritance. 
they find themselves in difficult times, and what do they do? They immediately now begin to send word to the one that they've completely rejected, and they said, we want you back in our life. We're having troubles. We need you to ultimately deliver us from our troubles. You guys tracking with that? You got the picture? Okay. Now, one thing that you need to understand about judges, if you don't already, is that each of these judges that we find, that we, that we study about in the book, uh, men and women, they are a type or a picture of the ultimate Savior that one day will come. Uh, they pictured the ultimate deliverer. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. So each one of them, as you study their, their bios and, and what they did, you can begin to see similarities between them and Jesus Christ. And it's, it's certainly the case for our hero here, Jephthah. Uh, it's, it doesn't take an Old Testament scholar to see really the correlation between the two, the similarities between the two. Uh, just like Jephthah, Jesus too was rejected by his own people. Uh, the scriptures tell us in John chapter 1 in verse 11 that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Uh, then again in John chapter 5 in verse 7, the Bible teaches us that he was rejected even by his own brothers, again, just like Jephthah. He was rejected by his brothers by their, by their unbelief. They refused to believe that he was who he said he was. It wasn't until after his death, burial, and his resurrection that they first began to believe that Jesus was truly the Christ. It's funny. It's something about your dead brother coming back to life begins to make you believe in him. And, and that seems to be the case for them. So they were rejected. He was rejected, Jesus, but he also seemed to have a way of hanging out with the motley crew, all right? Um, he found himself, in fact, some people said of him, they called him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 18, that he, they said of him that he was a friend of sinners. He collected around him people that were basically the greatest robbers and thieves of the day, tax collectors. And these are the people that he hung out with. Now, now we understand he hung with them for a different reason than Jephthah did. Jephthah wanted to take part in their crime, and Jesus wanted to demonstrate their sin and to die for their sin and show their need for himself. But what's interesting is the same way that, Je that, that, that Jephthah is rejected and then now called back for help, the same thing happens in the life of Christ. We read in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. This is on the day of Pentecost. This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes down, and now people are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter stands up in front of all those that he was afraid of, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach a message. And his message is about best message in the world about Jesus. And he begins to preach Jesus, and he tells them, he says, this Jesus, in verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus that you've crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and then he begins to explain who this Jesus was that they killed. He begins to let them know, hey, listen, the one that you killed that you took so much pride in in killing, he just so happens to be the Savior that all the scriptures point to. Uh, we've been waiting for a savior to come and all the scriptures say that one is going to come and we've seen the types just like in the book of Judges and he goes and now he has finally come and y'all killed him, right? Y'all are in trouble, all right? Y'all killed, killed the savior, right? And so they're in trouble and then he immediately turns around and then he shows the irony of what's going on and he says in verse 38 he says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit you see the irony they rejected him even to the point of killing him they find themselves in the reality of their trouble and in the midst of their trouble they have to call on the very one that they rejected for their salvation and you say well what's the significance of that 
Well, so what was true for the people of Gilead and Jephthah and what was true for the Jews and Jesus is true for us in God today. We still live out the same irony. Every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ or on the cusp of faith of being saved and being born again and having their sins forgiven by placing their faith completely in Christ faces the same point of irony. All of us, the Bible says, has rejected him. You say, how have we rejected him? I'm, I'm not against God. We reject him through what's called sin. The Bible says all have sinned in, in, in fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin towards God is our rejection of him. It's saying we want nothing to do with you. In essence, you say, well, how do we know that we've sinned? Well, the Bible says that God has written, Romans chapter 2, says that God has written his law on all of our hearts. We can't sit back and say, well, I didn't know better. I didn't know the Bible. The Bible says his law was written on our hearts in a thing that we call a conscience which lets us know a general understanding or have a general understanding of the difference between right and wrong. Your children, you don't have to teach them that lying is wrong. They know it. They feel it. They don't have to, you don't have to teach them that stealing is wrong. They know it. They feel it. Their conscience that's given to them by God, God writing the law on their heart, they know it's wrong, but yet they choose to do what? They choose to sin. They choose to sin against God. And see, here's the problem. It's not as though you and I have just kind of messed up along the way or broken one sin or a couple of the sins. Since we're guilty of all of them. And if we're really honest and we have any inclination of, of who we truly are, we understand that we have sinned. That is that we've rejected God hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times. You, you get every time we sin through our thoughts, through our actions, uh, through our intentions, w- whatever it is, we are rejecting him. We're, we're being just like the brothers of Japheth. We're, we're doing, uh, Jephthah. We're doing the same exact thing as he did. They said, listen, they said, we want you out of our way so that we can lay hold of the things that we want. And for each and every one of us, what we say is, God, we're going to reject you so we can lay hold of the things that we want. And what we want are the things that our lustful hearts are ultimately desiring is. And you need to be out of the picture for me to obtain them. And so this is the rejection. And this is where each and every one of us find ourselves. And guess what? I, I got to tell you this. That puts you and I in a whole heap of trouble. All right? And when I mean trouble, I don't mean the kind of trouble you might think that you're in right now. I don't mean marriage trouble, family problems, debt, physical problems. Look, those are all problems, and they're real problems, but they're not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is that, catch this, the creator of the whole universe, we have rejected and rebelled against hundreds of thousands of times in order to be able to do what we wanted, even though he's our creator and has the right over us to tell us how we ought to live. And now the judgment of God is resting on every one of us. So this means the judgment of God. What does that mean? It means that the consequence of our sin, the Bible says, is death. The Bible says every single one of us, catch this, every one of us will stand before God and give an account for our sin. And those who are found guilty, found guilty, because of our sin towards him, the wrath of God, which is now storing out, will, f- will fall completely on that individual, and they will be separated from God for all eternity. L- let me just say this. That's rough, and, and that's hard. And, and, and last night, I already preached this message just to let you know the psyche, and I'm like, maybe I can switch that up a little bit. Maybe I can make that sound, because everybody else is going to church where they're all like, they're excited. They're getting their groove on on Sunday. They're leaving going, hey, hey, he's alive. And the rest of us are sitting there going, dude, damnation and hell and the wrath of God? What kind, what kind of resurrection service is this, right? 
And, 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 but the truth of the matter is we can't get away from it because this is where we find ourselves, the reality of our sin against God. And then here's the irony. The very God that we have rejected hundreds of thousands of times, whose wrath is burning against us, you and I cannot save ourselves. We can't do anything. We can't just sit there and say, I'm going to be a better mom. I'm going to be a better, hu- a, a, a better husband. I'm going to be a better dad. All of that stuff doesn't work. We still have to pay for the sin. Somebody still has to pay the sin that we have. And so we find ourselves completely in a hopeless situation, unable to be able to help ourselves. And then we hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It says the only one that can help you is the very God that you have rejected. That's the irony of salvation. So we see two things. Look, we're, we're more than halfway done. So just take a big sigh of relief, all right? So, so the first, first thing here, this is my gift, Easter gift to you, short sermon. All right, here it is. So the first one is, is we see the irony of salvation. Do you see it? Do you see it? Rejecting, and then the one we reject, we have to call on to save us. Number two, the terms of salvation. Now, we, we already get it. I think we all, all, all got it so far. Just walk through. I know you're intelligent. I'm not. So let's make sure we all understand. Here it is. They reject, J, uh, J, um, uh, our, our hero has rejected, been rejected by the people, okay? They now are in trouble. They call on him to come back and to be able to save them. It's Jephthah. So couldn't remember the name. Now I remember it. All right, told you I wasn't very smart. So now let's look how they respond to, Jephthah responds to the people. Here's his response to the request. It says, but Jephthah said to the elder of Gilead, did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Uh, we, we can relate to this, right? I mean, we can relate to this where somebody's like, oh yeah, now you're going to call me because you want something, right? That's how we feel, right? Our kids go away to college, don't hear from them forever. They need some money. They call up and you're like, yeah, I know why you're calling. You need something, don't you, right? So some of you parents have experienced this very thing. He knows, he sees right through this, just like you do. He sees right through this. They're not calling him because they love him and they miss him. They're only calling him because they're in pain and they have a need that they believe that only he can fill. And so what they're doing is the one they've rejected, they're now like, hey, we, we changed our mind. We want a part of you. Come help us. He sees all the way through this. The, the lack of love and care for him was demonstrated in their full rejection of him. He understands that they would not, he would not be receiving their call if they were not in trouble. No trouble, no call. So he understands all of this. And so how is he responding to their request to come and fight on their behalf, to come and save them? Well, he certainly isn't saying yes, is he? No, and he doesn't write out, come out, specifically say no, but there is a no implied here. He's not moving, he's not acting, he's not saying that he will. Now, here's the key. Please understand this. This is where it gets a little bit difficult. He's not ultimately saying, no, I won't save you. What he's saying is no to the terms that they're submitting to him. You said, what are the terms that they're submitting? What they're in essence saying is, hey, listen, We want you back in our lives. We're struggling with difficulty in our lives. We want you to come back. We're going to follow your leadership. We're going to submit to your leadership. We're going to do whatever it is you call us to do for the length of the campaign. Do you get it? In other words, as long as we're in trouble, we're willing to follow you. As long as our lives are difficult and disarray, as long as you're willing to help us to get out of it, we're willing to follow you, submit to you, look like you, and you could be our guy, okay? But once the trouble is over, once the campaign is over, there's no promises after that. 
We're not saying or suggesting that we're gonna follow you or submit to you or follow your leadership or even see any value in you at all. And this, it's these terms that Jephthah is saying, no, I won't come and be your savior on those terms. They change the terms. Verse eight, they come back and they give it a second chance. This time the terms have completely changed. It says, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of, of Gilead. Now understand, the terms have completely changed. Terms in the beginning, we're having difficulties, we're willing to submit to you until those difficulties are over. Here's the second submission in verse eight. Hey, we're having difficulties. We we're gonna submit to you for you to be able to help us to this. But guess what? Even when the difficulties are over, we're going to submit to you, all of us, all of Gilead is going to submit to you from here on out. This is what Jephthah receives. These are the terms. These are Jephthah's terms, not even the people's terms. See, the Savior sets the terms. Those that need to be saved don't set the terms. Are, are you hearing what the word of God's saying? And then in verse 9, notice, it says, And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Then it goes on, it says, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, so what we see here is we see the terms of salvation. So, Mike, what, what is the significance of that? I mean, how in the world does that apply to us? We say it in its clearest terms. The, the terms of salvation that Jephthah gave the people are the same terms of salvation that God gives to us. Listen, I don't want to suggest for a moment this morning that God doesn't hear people's pleas when they're hurting and when they're having marriage problems and they want help and financial problems or whatever it might be. I'm not suggesting that. I know some theologians that say, or some non-theologians that basically say that God doesn't hear the, the voice of those that cry out to him, un unbelievers. Well, I don't think that's truth. I think God knows all things. I think he hears all things. Um, the difficulty is, is how does God respond to the unbelieving heart that calls out to God? When they sit there and they say, God, we need help. I'm hurting. How, the soldier in the fox, you know, in, in the foxhole. How does God respond to that? And let me just say that I don't know how all that works. I'm just going to be completely honest with you. Ask Brother Jimmy afterwards. He's much smarter than I am. Uh, just, just, I don't know theologically how all that stuff works exactly. I think God can respond to whoever he wants to respond to. And I certainly do think this. I think that God sometimes uses real hardships in our life. I wonder how many testimonies we could have this morning of people who would sit there and say, hey, man, I was at rock bottom when I heard the good news of Jesus Christ. My life was falling apart. Difficulties were happening. And he says, and what they do is they said, during that time, what I found out is even though as much as I thought I had problems, I came to the realization that there was a far greater problem. And the far greater problem was that I was a sinner against God and I was a deserving of hell. And one day I would have to stand before him and give an account. That was much greater than my financial problem and difficulty that I was going through. So I think that God can even use difficulties in our life to draw us to him, to show us an even greater need of us. And that's the need for true salvation. And so God uses these things. But, but, but notice this, I think nowadays, and I think if we're, if we're honest or at least attempt to be honest, I'm not sure that if we, as, as sinners that we are, that we can, can be completely uh, honest, but I think that there are many people out there who are rejecting him on a daily, daily basis saying, we want nothing to do with you. 
nothing to do with you. We don't want you to lord over our life. Uh, we're we're going to reject you in every way. In fact, we don't even want you in our life because the truth of the matter is I can't get what I want with you here. So I, I want the things of this world. You need to be gone. The instant tragedy happens, they begin to call on God. And they begin to deal with him and they begin to make terms. And, and here are their terms. Their terms are, hey, listen, I'll follow you. I'll follow you, and I'll get into this Jesus thing, and I'll come to church, and, and, you know, and, and maybe I'll even read a Bible, get a part of a little like, you know, Bible study. I might do something. I might even throw in a nickel every once in a while. I might do some of that for God. I'm getting really crazy here. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of that, um, God, as long as you can make everything better. And I can't tell you over 20 years of ministry how many people I've seen come and go, come and go, playing the same God on the same terms saying, God, I will be here as long as you will help my problem and my difficulty. And then either things do get better and they fall away or things don't get better and they figure amongst themselves, this whole thing isn't going to work. This God thing doesn't work. I need to go and do something else. Well, here's the deal. These are not God's terms for a relationship with him in salvation of what truly matters. These are not these are not God's terms. These are our terms. God says, here's his terms. If you want me to save you from more than just the difficulties of life, if you want me to save you from your greatest problem, your sin, I will. I want to save you. I'm willing to save you. It, it's, it's why I sent my son Jesus Christ to die for you, to save you from your sin so that your sins would be paid for, but instead of you paying for them, they would, be, they would pour out, the wrath of God would pour out on the person of Jesus Christ, and you would take on his righteousness, and he would see you as righteous and accept you as sons and daughters of Christ. I want to do that. And he says, but if I do, here are my terms. You must make me Lord of far more than your problems. You must make me Lord of your whole life. Now, I'm going to say something that even folks in here disagree with, but it is my conviction of what the Word of God says. For years, we have had people and teachers teach what is called just an easy believism gospel. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose on the dead? Okay, pray this prayer. You're good. You're in. And the people go away, and the only time they ever come back is when there's difficulty inside of their life. I'm telling you, and, and what they'll teach is, hey, look, there's a time in your life that you ask Jesus as Savior, but then later on down your life, you make him as Lord. That's inconsistent with the clear teaching of the word of God. Because for you to sit there and say, I'm gonna accept you as Savior, to forgive me of my sin, to get me out of hell, but I'm not going to turn from my sin, then the Bible says that you're not truly repenting. And in order to be born again, you have to repent and believe. Repent is a change in your direction, that you're no longer doing things your way, but now you're no longer rejecting him, but now you're saying, reign over my life. Now, let me just say this. I've not mastered that. You've not mastered that. Other people who have been born again have not mastered that. The rest of our lives, we work that out. But when we come to him on his terms, we're not coming to him and saying, just rescue me from my difficulty. We're saying, rescue me from it all. Save me. Come and Lord over my life. And that's when God comes and saves, just like we see the salvation here. Now, in the beginning, I said that there were similarities between Japheth and Jesus. What is it? Both of them are saviors. But there are some clear differences, as I've already pointed out. 
And there's even point differences in the way that they save. For Jephthah to save the people, he has to live and he has to take lives. And that's what he does. If you're going to read uh, the next chapter, that's what he does. He saves his people by taking the lives of other people. Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior, saves the lives of others by giving his life. But there's also a difference. What we find time and time in this book, in the book of Judges, is every time the judge dies, the people lose their ever-loving mind. They lose their ever-loving mind. And the reason is, is because if there's no king, then there's no one to subject themselves to. There's no one to submit themselves to. They die. What they need is a living king. And so here's the beauty. Jesus Christ did die to save you, to become sin for you, to take away your sins. But you cannot submit yourself to a dead king, to a dead savior, to a dead Lord. What is he going to say? Nothing. Dead people say nothing. So on the third day, God, in an amazing act of his power, takes Christ's death, who is dead, and he raises him up for the whole world to see as a demonstration, number one, that the payment of sin was satisfied towards sinners. And you know what he does with Jesus? He raises him up and he seats him at the right hand. The right hand is a place of authority where Jesus Christ rules and reigns supreme over his people and all those that he saves. So the question is, does he reign over you? Does he reign over you? Is this one of those things, man, coming today? I'm just going to come today and everything's going to be good with God. I got my two times with God. We're, we're, we're good. And, and listen, we love that you're here. But I fear for you. I fear for you in the fact that you think on your terms you can be saved by God by saying, I will invite you in and be a part of my life when things are bad but I don't want you to do with any other part. I'm telling you, you don't set the terms for salvation. Jesus does. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you today, and we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for...